Welcome to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Chloe Rogis, and I'm on the communications team here at Rolling Hills. As we continue in our summer series, The Greatest Adventure, today you'll hear from Kelly Minter as she teaches from Exodus 25 on how our God is a God of the details. He's in all things, big and small, and He's sovereign through everything. Now let's jump into today's message from Kelly. I am so thrilled to be with you guys this morning. And as Eric said, that I'm typically up at the Nashville campus. And so it's really fun for me to be back down here in Franklin with you all this morning. And um, many of you guys know that I do some work with our mission arm here at Rolling Hills, Justice and Mercy International. And I've been working with them for the past decade or so. And I'm so grateful I just was able to get off of a trip uh, to the Amazon jungle. And we work a lot in the Amazon. And some of you all know that because of COVID last year, um, and especially actually at the top of this year, we lost a lot of people dear to us and dear to our ministry in Brazil. Uh, One of our staff members, Talita, lost both of her parents within just a few weeks of each other to COVID. We had another um, family um, who lost the husband and a father. We had someone else who lost a brother. And it was just a really difficult time. And so Mary Catherine Hunt, who's the executive director of Justice and Mercy International, and Carrie Bidwell, who's over logistics um, and mobilization, the three of us decided that we were going to head down to the Amazon to see them. And when we were at the Nashville airport leaving, we recognized a friend of ours, a wonderful Bible teacher here in town, Paige Brown. And so we went up and we were talking with Paige and she asked, you know, what, where are you headed? What are you doing? And we kind of explained the situation that this wasn't really a mission trip per se, uh, but that we were just going to see the people who had been through such a difficult time. And she said, oh, well, I want to pray with you. I want to pray over you because what you are doing is called the ministry of presence. And I thought, okay, I'm so glad that she said that because it really helped me frame our whole trip that I... Really, the whole point of going was simply to have the ministry of presence, to be there with people who have suffered and who have had such a difficult time, and just to simply be with them, to be present with them. So once we got there and we got to spend some really good time, I was so thankful for that ministry of presence. God did something in our midst, a lot of healing and a lot of tears and a lot of laughter and some really great things. And about Five days into our trip or six days into our trip, we ended up getting on a little eight-passenger prop plane and flying 400 miles over just non-stop jungle. I've never seen anything like it in all my life. To meet with about 10 jungle pastors and missionaries also for the ministry of presence, to just be and to listen and to have fellowship and to eat together. And it was just that ministry of presence. Now, I will tell you that there was a time in that eight passenger prop plane that actually had the word experimental aircraft on the outside of it. That's a true, promise you, true story. And I, as I was looking in the, um, from the experimental aircraft down into the not experimental jungle, I, I, I thought, you know, how important is the ministry of presence? Like that Paige Brown word sounded so good in Nashville, but like how important is this? And we're going to see that it's actually everything. The ministry of presence is everything. And that today is where we're going to pick up in our series of the tabernacle and of this great adventure through Exodus where God is going to give his people instructions to build a tabernacle, which means dwelling place because the ministry of God's presence with us was so 
utterly essential. And I can't wait for us to unpack this, but we know that God's ministry of presence is so essential because it begins, the whole story of the Bible begins in Genesis chapter one and two, where God created man and woman to be present with him, to dwell with him in the Garden of Eden. But we know what happens when Adam and Eve sin and that fellowship is broken and that presence is, is compromised and we know from that point in the story to where we are in Exodus that a long time has gone by and while God has manifested his presence at different times in sort of sporadic places like to Abraham and you know Jacob has an encounter with God. I mean, there's different times where God's presence shows up. But up until this point in our story, there is not a consistent presence of God among his people. And so we left off last week, Pastor Chase talking about Moses up on top of Mount Sinai and God giving him the 10 commandments and giving him the law um, to give to the people how they were to live, what would be good and right and how they would flourish as a people and as a kingdom of priests, of representatives to the rest of the world. But also on Mount Sinai, and this is what we're gonna look at today, God gives instructions, a pattern of a tabernacle, of a dwelling place, so that God can once again be back with his people. Um, in fact, I wanna read about what this looks like in Exodus chapter 29. I wanna read the first nine verses, and then we will unpack some of this. Exodus 25, verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses. Tell the Israelites to take an offering for me. You are to take my offering from everyone who is willing to give. This is the offering you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. Fine linen and goat hair. Ram skins dyed red and fine leather. Acacia wood, oil for the light. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx along with other gemstones for mounting on the ephod and breastpiece. Verse eight, this is significant. They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. You must make it according to all that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle as well as the pattern of all its furnishings. Verse eight, so that I may dwell among them. That is the reason for the tabernacle. Now, there are lots and lots of comparisons, direct comparisons to the tabernacle, to the Garden of Eden. And we see that in some ways, this is a step back to the Garden of Eden. This is God dwelling with his people once again. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, who I love, he talks about the tabernacle as a portable Eden where once again people can be in the presence of God, or at least the priest as a representative can be in the presence of God on behalf of the people. But we see that even some of these materials that are listed for the people to bring to make the tabernacle were uh, uh, materials that existed in the Garden of Eden. Um, God speaks seven times um, when, during creation in the garden, and there are seven commands here. There are lots and lots of parallels, but one of the most significant is that after the Garden of Eden, we know that there is sin. 
and the sin happens, there's a fall. And what we sometimes forget is that after the, uh, the blueprints, the pattern, the instructions that God gives Moses for the tabernacle, after he gives those to him, what happens? Moses goes down the mountain and what does he see? Do you all remember? The people have already, already created a golden calf that they are bowing down to and worshiping as the God who delivered them out of Egypt. So while Moses is ratifying this covenant with the Lord and he is giving them the 10 commandments, they are already breaking the first two, not to have gods before them and not to make a graven image. And so we think, well, what happened? I mean, cause here's all these wonderful plans and then Moses gets down there and then what happens? Well, in the middle of that awful, awful fall, the disaster of the golden calf, God renews his covenant with Moses and the people, and we find out something very, very important in between when God gives the instructions of the tabernacle and the people actually build the tabernacle, in between those two things, this is what God declares about himself, and this is Exodus chapter 34, verses six and seven. He says, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. We love that part about him being compassionate and gracious, and we see that he will forgive iniquity in that first part. But then we also see because of his justice and because of his holiness, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And this is the tension that we will see. But we will see that God's love and his faithfulness is um, shown in his provision and the ways that it prevails through the tabernacle. And so even despite the golden calf, God still allows the people to build this uh, tabernacle because this is who he is. He's a gracious God. He's a faithful God. See, there are these perfect blueprints, but then the people who are implementing the blueprints, this is where things begin to fall apart. And I'm so thankful for his character here. I was reminded of that just this last Sunday because I am having an addition built onto my house, me and every single other person in the United States of America, by the way, um, because of COVID. And so I'm having this porch built and they have these beautiful plans, these beautiful plans, and the plans look so perfect. But then people get involved with the plans. And so last week I walked down into my basement and I have a 1935 house uh, and, and the basement is not like a finished basement. It actually has dirt walls. And I walked down there and there was water everywhere. So much the fact that it had run down the dirt walls and carried the dirt and the mud with it. And I thought, oh my goodness, what is going on? And these are the moments that as a single woman, I'm just like, I'm ready to get married like to anybody right then. <laughs> Just anybody at any point. And so I got my step stool and I'm up there and there's like wet insulation and I'm pouring, I'm pulling it off. And, and all of a sudden I see that the drain that comes down from the shower is completely disconnected from the, the long white pipe that takes it out to some place. And I'm not a plumber, but I knew that that was a problem. 
And so they had to come and they had to fix it. And there were fans and there's fans that have been going all week long. And the fan, the hum of the fan reminds me that there's a difference between the beautiful, perfect plan and when people implement that plan. And this is the tabernacle. This is why God is making provision here. And he is telling though Moses and the people that he, they are to do exactly, exactly what the plan is. It also shows us today, and this is the first point for us, that the tabernacle revealed God's relentless desire to dwell with his people. The reason I say God's relentless desire to dwell with his people is because he makes the provision of the tabernacle after the fall in the Garden of Eden, and he renews the covenant with Moses and the people to actually build the tabernacle after the golden calf disaster after the nightmare. I want us to see today, I don't know how you came in today, but if you came in wondering if God wants to dwell with you, wondering if God wants to be in relationship with you, wondering if he wants to have the ministry of presence with you, I want you to know that this is not just a New Testament principle, but that this has been God's plan throughout, all the way from the Garden of Eden, and the tabernacle is a way to reinstitute and this is why we see that it is God's relentless desire to dwell with his people. All right, this tabernacle back in Exodus chapter 25, instead of talking to Moses about how the tabernacle is to be built, he begins with the most important article in the tabernacle. Okay, the tabernacle had three sections. There was kind of like the outer courtyard where the Israelites were able to come at certain times. Then there was a curtain that separated that outer court courtyard into the holy place. Then there was another very thick curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place or from the holy of holies. And God gives to Moses this one article, only one piece of furniture that is going to go into the holy of holies and it is the Ark of the Covenant. And I wanna read the description of what this looks like beginning in verse 10 of Exodus 25. God invites his people to be involved in this process and he says they are to make an ark of acacia wood 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold, overlay it both inside and out. Also make a gold molding all around it. Drop down to verse 16. Put the tablets of the testimony that I will give you into the ark. Make a mercy seat of pure gold, 45 inches long and 27 inches wide. Make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Verse 22, I will meet with you there above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you from there about all that I command you regarding the Israelites. So there's only one piece of furniture in this Holy of Holies, and it is this Ark of the Covenant. Um, a lot of scholars believe that it is made of this acacia wood, which is this indestructible type of wood that would represent and point toward Christ's humanity. They also believe that the gold, that it's possible, that the gold overlaying that acacia wood would point toward Christ's divinity, his humanity and his divinity. 
Now, what are we seeing here? Because we don't get a lot of explanation for what all of this means until we get later into Leviticus and then really all the way into the New Testament in Hebrews. But essentially what is happening here is that there is one priest, one high priest, one day a year that is able to go into this one room, this most holy place, where he goes before the Ark of the Covenant. Now, inside that Ark are the two tablets of the testimony, the Ten Commandments, that, that the covenant that God has with his people and the law that he has with his people, that's inside. Above that is this gold overlay, this mercy seat, which we'll get to in just a moment and describe what this means. But then there are two cherubim that are facing one another with their wings spread out over the mercy seat looking down and it says that God's presence would meet with the high priest who was there on behalf of the people and he would speak to them there in this holy place. But this would only happen one time a year on the day of atonement. And we need to get a little bit more information about this to understand what's happening here. And so over in Leviticus chapter 16, here is what we read. Leviticus 16 verses 15 and 16, and this is about Aaron the high priest. And it says, when he slaughters the male goat for the people's sin offering and brings its blood inside the curtain, he will do the same with its blood as he did with the bull's blood. The bull's blood was for him and his family. The goat's blood is for the people. He is to sprinkle it against the mercy seat and in front of it. He will make atonement for the most holy place in this way for all their sins because of the Israelites' impurities and rebellious acts. This is where atonement would be made. The, the word literally means at one mint, where there is reconciliation, where the wrath of God is turned away because of this sacrifice. The, the, the priest comes and he makes atonement here. But I want you to see how strategic this is because You have above the ark, in between the cherubim, you have the holy presence of Almighty God. It's unfathomable for us. You can't even imagine it. The holiness of God. And underneath, inside the ark of the covenant, you have the law that exposes our inability to keep it, that exposes our sins. You have basically the exposure of our sin here and the holiness of God and and the cherubim. And now why the cherubim? Why are the cherubim there? The cherubim we see in Genesis chapter three at the Garden of Eden, they are the angels that are guarding the Garden of Eden from the people getting back into the garden toward the tree of life after the fall. So the, the, the cherubim are not just like those, like Valentine's Day, like got the little bow and arrow. and the, It's not that. It's a guardian angel guarding the holiness of God. So how is this gonna work with the holiness of God and our inability to keep the law? Well, that's where the mercy seat is, this gold. And it's not a seat where somebody sits down. It's the place of mercy, like the seat of power. It's the place of mercy. And the way for this atonement to be made is that a sacrifice has to be made. A bull has to be slaughtered. A goat has to be slaughtered. And the blood, the priest comes in and it's all symbolic about what is to come. But the priest puts that blood, that sacrifice in between God's holiness and our inability 
to keep the law. And that's what's happening one day a year, one priest in the Holy of Holies. This is two for us today. Where God's holiness could not be compromised, God's mercy would be realized. I'll just pause here for just a moment and just tell you, and I just wanna leave this up for a while here today because this has been a little bit problematic or uncomfortable for me this week. I I realized how um, this has been an intense message for me to prepare for, to study for, to pray over, uh, because we live in a culture, and I'm not blaming the culture, I'm I'm just in it, so I'm aware of it, but we live in a culture where we're just not that comfortable with God's extreme holiness. And, and so we have kind of created God into the, our own image and we, it's like, yeah, well, we can just approach him how we want to approach him. It's, it's like he's sort of like Santa in the sky or as Jim pa- uh, my friend Jim Thomas of the Village Chapel would always say, the cosmic concierge, our cosmic concierge, that God's just here as our personal butler and, 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 and if you want to call him, whatever you want to call him, call him that. Whoever you want to pray to, pray to that. And, and I'm sure he's good. I'm sure he's good. He's good with who you are and what you do. And what, he's just, he's good. He's good. And that's kind of the message of the day that in order for us to be kind of like okay with who we are, we have to strip God of his holiness and we have to turn him into something that he's not. And so I had to combat that in my own time with the Lord this week, remembering that we serve an altogether other than holy, pure, good God. The other thing that we try to do, maybe even more so than strip God of his holiness, is we try to strip the amount of mercy that we need, or we try to make ourselves less of a sinner. And this, all you have to do is go to social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Have you noticed that people are quoting a lot recently? Have you guys noticed that on social media? Like there's just a lot of quotes. Like just, we're just flooding with quotes. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, it's just a lot of quotes. And whether you're, if you're not on social media, you're getting the same information on Netflix or whatever podcast you're listening to. It's it's all just coming to us from all of these different directions. And the main message is, that you're okay, and I'm okay. And God doesn't want us to be upset at ourselves. That would be such a downer. And it's just good, we're just good, and you just live your truth, and I'll live my truth, and we're just gonna, li- we're just gonna dig deep, and we're just gonna feel so good about who we are. And we're just, we just don't wanna talk about sin and brokenness and this whole like sacrifice, and this gets so hard and heavy. We just all want to be good. But the problem is, is that if, if, I, if I do me and you do you, that all works great until me doing me gets in the way of you doing you and vice versa. And then we have a problem and we have conflict. I had my niece Lily over yesterday and we were eating popsicles on my front porch and I adore this child. I mean, I, adore, I do not have favorites. There are six. I do not have favorites. But I love this one. Like crazy, okay? She probably just because she's the baby, but I just love this one. Well, anyway, she's on my front porch, and last week, um, right before I found all of the water in my basement, I was painstakingly bleaching 
the stones in front on my porch and just getting them all clean. And, and so we're out there yesterday and she's eating this popsicle that I had given her and it's just, you know, of course it's like raspberry. It can't be like lemon. It has to have like this deep dye. And so she's licking it and I'm trying to get her to not drip it. And I'm like, you kind of have to get your tongue under the, they can't do it. They can't, they can't as, you know, ice cream cones, popsicles under five, you, they cannot help the drips. And anyway, the very first drip and very inevitably falls down onto the new clean stone. And she says, Aunt Kelly, I just dripped. But it's okay. It's okay. Except for she says, Ote, which is one of the reasons I really love her. It's Ote. It's not a problem. And, you know, a few months ago, she's learning to, or a few years ago, however long it was, she's learning to be potty trained and, and she doesn't quite make it to the bathroom at my house. And so there's this little trail, like from the kitchen all the way to, and she's like, Aunt Kelly, I, it's Ote. It's Ote. Now, why does Lily, why does she always get out ahead of me and tell me it's okay? Because she has this sneaking suspicion that it's not okay. It's not gonna be all right. She knows that I bleached that stone last week. I know she knows it in her bones, she knows it. This is not okay. And we have, as a culture, and I'm right there, but we are buying books on mass to tell us, to tell ourselves, that we are okay. And we are subscribing to teachers and podcasts and movies and shows and books that tell us that we're okay. And we're not okay. We are loved. We are loved by Almighty God, a God who passionately wants to dwell with us and passionately wants to have a relationship with us. But we're not okay. And I don't know if you feel that, but I feel that. And I know that in my bones, I know it. And that's where I was kind of struggling this week and I was reminded myself like, Lord, you are so holy and I am not okay and I need mercy. I need the sacrifice. Even though this feels so foreign because it's so distant, the tabernacle, the concepts are right here for today. We're gonna to get to God's incredible love and sacrifice for us in just a moment, but I wanna go in order here. I wanna go in the order that God gives to Moses and I wanna step out of the Holy of Holies for just a moment and I wanna step back on the other side of this curtain to the room of just the holy place. It's not the Holy of Holies, but it's a holy place and the people could not get in there because of God's holy presence, only the priests could get in there and they would serve in that holy place. And there were only really two pieces of furniture. I think there's also an altar of incense that we see later, but there are two main pieces of furniture that God tells the people to build. And the first is a table, a table. Exodus 25, verses 23 through 24. You are to construct a table of acacia wood 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding all around it. Verse 30, put the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. 
Now, if you want to find out more about the bread of the presence, you can go to Leviticus 24, and you can see how the priests would make this bread, and on the Sabbath day, they would take 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel, because remember that the tabernacle sat in between all of the 12 tribes' tents of Israel's. He was right at the center. God's presence is right at the center, and every single Sabbath, these 12 loaves would be put out before the Lord. And it wasn't so the Lord could eat. Um, the, in the ancient Near East, people would do that, that they served pagan gods and they would put out food so the gods had something to eat. God does not need that from us. So he had the priest put out the bread of the presence that was continually to be there. And in fact, not only would God not eat the bread, but the priests were to eat the bread from the previous week. And never was there to be without these 12 loaves on the table. This represented a couple different things. It, first of all, it represented fellowship, that God could have fellowship with his people. Where do you experience fellowship with people the most? At a table over food, right? That is where we fellowship with others. And so the priests would fellowship with one another in the, with God in the presence of God with these loaves. But also these loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel and them being before God. They're never out of his gaze. It's the bread before God's face. Always there. And as I was praying for you this week, I was actually praying as though we were loaves of bread with all of our needs, and all of our desires and all of our longings that we, are just, that we are just loaves of bread sitting underneath the face and the gaze of God. Because we see that the bread of the presence, this is what it reminds Israel of. This is, um, this is number, uh, what number is it? Penny, help me here. Uh, three. Thank you. The 12 loaves of bread reminded Israel of God's ever-present, inexhaustible provision. Ever-present inexhaustible, was never not there, that God was going to be provision for his people with those 12 loaves of bread. I don't know what you came in looking for today. I don't know what provision you are continually after right now, but I guarantee you that if it is anything but the provision that comes from God himself, it is a temporary provision. It is an exhaustible provision. It is a provision that will leave you hungry yet again. Well, opposite this table of the showbread is a lamp, a lamp stand. And I want to read um, about the lamp stand again in Exodus 25. This is what the Lord says to Moses. He says, you are to make a lamp stand out of pure hammered gold it is to be made of one piece, its base and shaft, its ornamental cups, and its buds and petals. And then in verse 37, he says, make its seven lamps and set them up so that they illuminate the area in front of it. As I was on my porch yesterday preparing for this message, my little neighbor came over, she's six years old, and, and I, she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm preparing for a message. And she's like, really? What? What are you talking about? And I said, the tabernacle. And she's like, what's that? And I was like, well, it's like this tent where God came to dwell with his people. And I, I said, and right now, I'm actually really just kind of thinking about this lamp that went in the tent. And she goes, you don't put lamps in tents. And I said, you know what? You do bring up a good point. 
we don't plug a lamp into a tent, but this was not a, um, this was a lamp where, first of all, it looked like a tree with seven branches, nod to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Remember, this is a portable Eden. And then there are these seven um, lanterns, if you will, that are sitting variously around this lampstand and all seven lights, the, the Hebrew number of perfection, of completion, is to be lit at all times. And again, you can go to Leviticus 24 and you can see that this is a statute that was to remain throughout all the generations that Aaron as the priest were to always have the oil and always have the all seven lights burning. And it reminded the people of God that God's lamp was on, his light was on, and that he was at home among them. That he is light in the darkness. And the tree represented the life of God, life and light, and this is for light and life. The lampstand reminded Israel that nothing was more important than the light and light of God's presence with them. The light reminded them that God was at home among them, that his presence was with them. In Exodus 33, when the whole thing went up in flames because of um, the people sin with the golden calf, or it seemed like it was about to go up in, in flames. God says, you know what, Moses? I'm gonna send you and the people onto the promised land. I'm just not gonna go with you. And Moses said, if you don't go with us, we're not going. We don't care if it's the promised land. We don't care where it is. If you don't go with us, it's not worth it because your presence is everything. Your presence is life. Your presence is light. It's everything. The question we have to ask ourselves today is after all of this in the tabernacle, and there's actually quite a lot more, what does this point to? You just can't get enough of it in the New Testament to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of these um, articles in the tabernacle and how Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle himself. As far as the light is concerned, in John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness. In John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. No one comes to me will ever be hungry. Jesus is showing here in the Gospels that he's the fulfillment of all that was taking place in the tabernacle. But most significant, more significant than any other thing is this idea of atonement and what took place in the Holy of Holies. I want to close by reading a portion of scripture out of Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Um, at least two decades ago, I don't, know how, I don't know how long ago it was. I was living in Virginia, so it's been a long time. So I've been in Nashville for 20 years. And I had come home from something, and I don't even remember what, it, what had happened. But I remember sitting in my parents' um, kind of sunroom, and I was absolutely overwhelmed with my sin. I was overwhelmed by the the goodness and the purity and the holiness of God. And I was overwhelmed, not just of what I've done, but just who I was. And, and I, it was just almost more that I could bear. And I just didn't even know like, how, where am I gonna go with this? And I just remember being 
it was just so heavy. And if you've experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. And I will never forget turning to Hebrews chapter nine, verse 11. And based on everything that we just heard in the tabernacle, listen to these words. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Jesus entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, listen to this, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we may serve the living God? Number five, there are no more sacrifices to be offered, blood to be spilled, bread to be made, lamps to be lit, oil to be pressed, incense to be burned, or curtains to be pulled back. There is only one high priest, Jesus Christ, to be trusted. I know I'm not okay. I know I'm loved. I know I'm created in the image of God but it doesn't matter how many of these books are positive thinking, I, I need this message. I need to be reminded that Jesus Christ sacrificed himself and shed his blood for me and put himself as the one who marched into the tabernacle, not the one made with hands, but the eternal tabernacle once and for all so that we can now have direct access to God, and that is true for me, and it is true for you, and that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you came in this morning and you know that God is altogether holy, we don't want him to be any less than that. And if you know that you have contributed to the evil and the brokenness and the sin in this world, and you know it's not okay, Jesus says, I'm the perfect sacrifice. Would you come to him for salvation today? Lord Jesus, we can't do it ourselves. We've tried and we can't do it. And you have done it for us, Lord. And I thank you so much that we live today on this side of the cross where we don't have to continually sacrifice, continually um, Lord, be terrified by your presence because Jesus Christ has made atonement for us. Lord, I thank you that in John chapter one, it says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Lord, you came here right up beside us and you rescued us out of all of our sin and out of all of our brokenness and out of all of our not okayness. 
And because of your sacrifice, we are pure, we are free, we are forgiven, and we have direct access to God the Father through Jesus Christ, to dwell in his presence here and forevermore. We thank you in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, where you can find great podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, Rolling Hills Women's As You Go Podcast, and more. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook and stay up to date on what's happening and ways you can connect. We're thankful for you.